And now I'll introduce our guest today. Canada has always produced its share of top-drawer political and broadcast journalists, but a few have ever reached the iconic status of today's guest. It's no stretch to say that Don Newman has touched the lives of more Canadians than any other broadcaster in the business. In his 40-year career, he's reported on and interviewed every Prime Minister from Pierre Trudeau to Stephen Harper. Don began his career in front of the camera when he opened CTV's Washington Bureau in 1972. He quickly became a familiar face to Canadians with his coverage of the Watergate scandal. Four years later, he joined the CBC in Washington, but it wasn't long before he was brought back to Canada as a CBC senior Western correspondent working out of Edmonton. In 1981, Don made one final move to the CBC's Parliamentary Bureau in Ottawa, the posting that became home, at least for the last 28 years. Don took his responsibilities as a journalist and commentator seriously. From the beginning, he used his access to the most powerful politicians and statesmen to help Canadians understand the government and its dealings. He was our eyes, our ears, and voice through political scandals, debates, major public policies, legislation enacted in the House and Senate, and major decisions by the Supreme Court of Canada. He was able to boil down political meanderings, extract the essentials, and truly inform us about some of the country's most defining issues, elections, the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, political scandals, and the failed Meech and Charlton Accords. Don may have retired from the CBC last June, but he hasn't slowed down. He's been keeping a hand and as a guest commentator back at the CBC. He is in demand as a speaker and commentator and is now also a principal in the Day Newman Network Incorporated, offering private advice and public presentations from the private sector. Please join me in welcoming him here today to the Canadian Club of Toronto, Don Newman. Thank you, uh, thank you, Cappy. Um, it's uh, it's a delight to be here. Uh, I understand this is the opening uh, the opening presentation of your uh, season this year, and it's uh, my first speech outside of Ottawa since I uh, had a little career change. So I'm delighted that we have this double going on at the same time. And it is very nice to be here. Uh, although when I said that to Alan Bonner, my friend, as we were having lunch, I said, "You know, Alan, it's really nice to be here." He said, well, you know, Don, the way things are for you now, it's probably very nice to be anywhere. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure how to take that any more than I was when uh, back in the spring I told David Hurley, my friend, who's also at the table, I said, you know, David, I'm, I'm going to be retiring from uh, politics. He said, really, you can't retire. You've never had a real job. <laughs> it's also nice to see uh, in the room uh, a lot of my former colleagues from the CBC this is obviously a benefit of retirement. When I worked there, they never wanted to have lunch with me. And now look at, look at all the ones that are here, and I appreciate that. Thank you for coming. Uh, I am, you may be surprised to know this because you all live here, but Canadians who don't live in Toronto are not always really enamored of Toronto. I am not one of those Canadians. I am a unique Canadian. Nothing to do with what John said, which was very flattering and uh, some of it almost partially true. It was fantastic. But I am a person who uh, particularly likes Toronto, and I think the, probably the fact of the matter is that that's because twice I have lived in Toronto, and I was thinking about my time here when I lived here, uh, parts that I can remember and parts that I can't, and uh, then wondering that if I lived here again, I might not be able to help solve this city's most intractable problem. When I was a very little boy, and I don't really remember this, but I've checked the dates, and when I was a very little boy, 
I lived in Toronto. Teeter Kennedy was the captain of the Maple Leafs, and the Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup. <laughs> when I was a young adult, I moved to Toronto. George Armstrong was the captain of the Maple Leafs, and the Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup. I left Toronto. Nothing's happened since. <laughs> with, um, with housing prices here, I can't come back on my own, but if you'd like to start a collection, I'd be glad to come back, and, and pretty soon I'll be leading the victory parade down Young Street. So uh, I look forward to that. Uh, I want to talk to you today about uh, what is going on in our country and what is, has been going on in our country, and uh, maybe give you an idea that if you think is a good idea, uh, you might even want to pick up and run with it yourselves, because I think if we are going to uh, improve things, uh, we're not going to leave it just to the politicians. Politicians and politics and public policy are really too important to leave. Like war is too important for generals, public policy and uh, politics is too important for the politicians, and we have to think how we're going to do. Now, today, we dodged a fall election, for now, because of an amazing role reversal between the Liberals, the Bloc Québécois, and the NDP. The Bloc and the NDP supported the government in the confidence vote, even though the Prime Minister had, as recently as last week, been calling them the Bloc separatists and the NDP socialists. And of course, Mr. Harper's way ahead in the polls, and he really would like to have an election, while the other parties really don't want to have an election. So Mr. Harper was so upset when he got the results today that I checked my BlackBerry, and I got a message from Ottawa, new conservative strategy, Next week, Stephen Harper will refer to the NDP as communists <laughs> and the Black Quebecois as terrorists. <laughs> Which means that we'll probably have an election almost any time, so stand by. But we are going to have an election that uh, I think is going to produce another minority government. And people talk, well, the system's dysfunctional. We have this minority government. Uh, we need a new generation of politicians. Maybe we do, but I don't think that would change of the situation. I think that we're going to have a minority government, whatever happens. We're going to have a minority government because of mainly the Black Quebecois. The Black Quebecois, every election, takes anywhere from 35 to 50, but usually closer to 50 seats, really off the table before the election begins. And that makes it very difficult for the other parties, the Liberals or the Conservatives, to win a majority of seats in the House of Commons. Uh, and so I think minority governments are likely to be something that we're going to have. It's not an interregnum between majority governments. It's actually probably going to be something that is uh, the rule rather than the exception. And if it's going to be the rule rather than the exception, then I think we have to learn how to live with minorities and how to make them work and how to make the politicians in minority governments work and stop acting as though there is going to be an election at any moment because we'll have to make sure that it's very difficult for them to have an election at any moment. Since we live in an age of fixed election laws, it seems to me uh, that shouldn't be too hard. Um, fixed election date laws, not fixed election laws, um, just fixed election date laws, and that's a very important difference, and I'm glad I corrected myself. <laughs> Once you lose your editor at the CBC, you know, it's really tough. I, I, this isn't easy, folks. I got to tell you. Uh, why do I think that this is going to be the rule? Well, because of the Black Quebecois, and because uh, history really tells us uh, that when a situation like this develops, that is what we've had. If you think back, and some of us can remember, and the rest of you will have to look it up, if you think back to the period between 1960 and 1980, we had eight different elections 
in that period, and five of them produced minority governments. And they produced minority governments mainly because there was also a party that ran, it ran some candidates outside of Quebec, but it ran mainly in Quebec and could win seats in Quebec, and that was the Creditis. And the Creditis created the minority governments of 62, 63, 65. Uh, they helped create the minority government of 72, although there were some other things involved in that. Uh, the election of 79 was a minority government, and the failure to deal uh, with the Creditis by Joe Clark led to the election of 1980, where the Creditis lost all their seats, and we went back into a period of, uh, of majority governments that even went on into the 1990s. Then you say, well, look, there are even more parties in the 1990s because there was the PCs and the Reform and the Bloc, and uh, Jean Chrétien had these majority governments. But uh, I guess if you have four parties, it's difficult to have a majority government, but if you have five parties, it's actually easier because what happened, of course, in the 90s was, and particularly in Ontario, the Conservatives, the PCs, and the Reform split the vote, and that allowed the Liberals to win a lot of seats that they hadn't won uh, at any time since Confederation and probably won't ever win again. But that was the five-party system. The four-party system is, uh, it seems to me, going to send us uh, to minority governments almost all the time. You may get a, a time when it won't, but I think the um, minority governments are going to be the rule. So how do we deal with minority governments? Well, I think we look back to the 1980s, uh, the 1960s, pardon me, and we see that a minority government was defeated, stayed in power, and uh, continued on until there was the, the next election. And that was the Pearson government, uh, that was elected as a minority in 1965. In 1968, uh, the leadership race to replace Mr. Pearson was on, and virtually everybody in the Liberal caucus was running, even though Pierre Trudeau was going to win. They all decided to run anyway because they uh, couldn't believe that they wouldn't win themselves. There was a vote. The House of Commons used to sit at night. There was a vote late into the evening on a budget bill, clause in a budget bill in 1968, and the government was defeated, I think by only one vote, I'm not sure, but it was narrowly defeated. But there was hardly anybody in the House when the vote was taken. So rather than resign, Mr. Pearson, who was also on holidays and wasn't there to vote, came back from Florida and he organized a second vote, a vote, does the House have confidence in the government? And the government won that vote. The Conservatives were outraged, but the government won the vote and the government stayed on and it stayed on until there was the leadership convention and the Liberals had a new leader and then having used that uh, arrangement for the first time, uh, they immediately called an election and won a majority. <laughs> but anyway, that's probably why the Conservatives were really upset even later. But the fact of the matter was, there was a confidence vote the government lost on a money matter, and the next day there was, or no, it wasn't the next day, but a couple of days later, there was another vote just on confidence, and in fact, the House voted in favor of the government, and the government continued. So it seems to me what we need is a system where in a minority parliament where parliament is set up really for only two parties, government and opposition. And the opposition is to oppose and obviously the government is to govern. And if you only have two parties, you have always a majority government. But since we can't really change the part, we could change the parliamentary system, but since that would be a constitutional change, that isn't likely to happen. So what we need to do instead seems to me is change the rules in parliament. And parliamentarians can change their own rules. They can do it if they want. By and large, they're reluctant to do anything that uh, rocks the boat very much. But in fact, uh, they, I think when they realize that they won't have to go through this kind of game of 
chicken all the time and where they have to uh, pretend that they're opposing the government because they know it isn't going to fall, but when suddenly it's going to fall, uh, they have to change their votes, as we saw between the Bloc and the uh, NDP this week. Last night on Parliament Hill, they turned out all the lights. They turned out all the lights because there was so much illumination from the red faces of the NDP and Bloc members that they didn't need to put the lights on. But that's not really a good thing for public life, uh, any more than it is to see the Liberals either abstaining or a few of them coming in to vote. It, it makes kind of a mockery of the system, and it's no wonder then the Canadians wonder what is going on and think that uh, the politicians aren't really in it for Canadians, they're in it for themselves. And so I think what we have to do is convince politicians to change their own rules so that we could have a system where uh, a government could be defeated on a traditional confidence, uh, confidence matter, which would be uh, the budget, the estimates, or the throne speech. We don't need uh, maybe a couple of other things, but we don't need many confidence votes. But it could be defeated, and then it could try to uh, regain the confidence of the House and uh, have a second vote, what I call the Pearson plan, uh, have a second vote just on confidence. If that doesn't work, and it goes on from here, if that doesn't work, then the Prime Minister goes to the Governor-General. But the Governor-General, because of the fixed election law, the Governor-General's mandate is expanded to maintain a government between fixed election dates. The Governor-General can then uh, say, well, I don't think we'll have an election yet. I'm going to invite someone else to have a government and see if they can meet the House and if he has uh, someone or she finds someone to do that, and usually the opposition parties will know this is going to happen, uh, and may or may not want to form a coalition, because they may want to have an election. Maybe that's why they voted to defeat the government. So they don't have to do it. So you, you preserve the ability of parliament and parliamentarians and the political parties to trigger an election if they absolutely want one. But then they have to absolutely explain why they want one. Uh, if there is a coalition government, uh, then it has to meet uh, parliament, and it has to have a confidence vote within two or three days. And if it passes that, then it can continue on until the next confidence vote. And we just keep going on that process. I think if we do that, it will be much more difficult for politicians to then say, well, you know, I mean, uh, we, uh, we will never vote for this uh, budget. Uh, we haven't read it, but we're never going to vote for it because we're just opposed in principle to these people. And then a few months later say, oh, gosh, we could uh, be out on our ear and... Uh, change their mind. And I mean, we saw that in the Martin minority as well. Uh, remember in the first Martin budget uh, after the 2004 election, Stephen Harper came out, the budget speech was still being read in the House, and he came out where all the cameras were and he said, we're not going to vote against this. And he wasn't going to vote against it because he knew that if there was another election he'd probably get fewer seats than uh, he had at the time. And he'd already got the Liberals into a minority. But then something happened, and that was called the Gomery Inquiry on TV. And testimony started coming out of the Gomery inquiry uh, that, in retrospect, doesn't seem as exciting as it seemed at the time. But there was a man named Jean Bro who testified, and he had a very rough time, and it seemed to tie the Liberals into the sponsorship spending and so forth. And all of a sudden, Stephen Harper, who had voted for the budget, realized that he was way up in the polls, the Liberals were going down, and he voted against the budget. And that triggered that whole Belinda Stronach, Chuck Cadman uh, month in Parliament, which was pretty exciting. But again, you know, I don't think really served Parliament all that well in the general sense. And I'm not talking about the people in a pejorative way, but just the process, uh, it seems to me, 
doesn't work very well when we work that way. So I think what we have to do is convince politicians that they have to stop behaving the way they do in terms of confidence votes. I hope that would then get them to change their ways since they have to work together, change the way they treat each other, change the way they behave. I mean, think about it for a moment. There's no one more critical of politicians than other politicians. If you bankers in the room talked about each other the way politicians talk about each other, we'd all keep our money in our sock under our mattress because uh, there'd be no confidence in, in your institutions. And uh, that's what politicians have been doing. And that heightens when we have this perpetual election campaign that we're in. Even in a majority government, the last year of majority government, when people know elections coming, uh, really very little work usually gets done. And parliament is raucous. Well, now, when you have a minority government all the time, uh, it's always the maybe the week before the election or maybe the month before the election. So we have that kind of behavior going on. I think that first, if you had a system where you had to justify, you could, you could vote against a budget or you could vote against something you didn't like in a budget, but you didn't trigger an election, I think then uh, governments would know we're going to have to win this confidence vote. Maybe we're going to have to win the confidence vote on the budget instead because... Uh, it's embarrassing to lose and then have to scramble around in two or three days to make some kind of a deal. Why don't we find a partner earlier on? I think that that would make the system work better. I think MPs would work together uh, in a system which is really an adversarial system, and if you just have a government and an opposition, you're not going to have them working together. But in a system where you have a minority government, if they don't work together, nothing gets done. And not a lot is getting done. If you even think, you know, really since 2004... The number of things that have either been glossed over or not dealt with at all, and the number of things that have in the, in the country that uh, are big issues that we really probably don't even think are big issues because we never think about them. But uh, you know, whatever happened to the east-west power grid? What happened to uh, a real uh, economic and energy and environment policy? What happened to the Mackenzie Valley pipeline? We've been going to build that almost since I started reporting certainly since the 70s, uh, there's two or three other things you could think of. Uh, what about the National Securities Regulator? You know, and is there going to be any real leadership? I mean, the National Securities Regulator, it seems to me, should be in Toronto. But, you know, to get the legislation, or get the, you know, I mean, it's partly a provincial issue, uh, not quite the same thing. Uh, it may not be in Toronto just uh, in a way to try and get more provinces to sign on, since it turns out it's optional whether or not you want to join. Uh, but all of these kind of things we really haven't talked about, never mind... Uh, what we, uh, you know, energy exports, who should own the uh, oil sands, uh, how do we really deal with the Americans, uh, our water policy, all of these things are looming out there. And if we're going to continue to have minority governments, we're not going to really be dealing with them properly. So I think we have to change the rules so that we have minority governments uh, working together, and I think we do that mainly by changing the way confidence votes work. So I hope if that has any merit uh, to any of you, that uh, you think about it, maybe you write your MP, maybe you write a letter to the paper. Uh, I'm going to keep trying to push this because uh, much as I enjoyed my work, and, and uh, I mean, David Hurley was right, I never really did have a job because if you find something you love to do, you'll never work a day in your life, and I'm sure there are others in the room that know that. But I, I've got to admit, uh, the last couple of years have not been as enjoyable. It's been a bit like... Uh, going to a hockey game, and uh, all there is is fights. 
you know, a fight in a hockey game is okay. It kind of livens it up if there's one. But if uh, all it is is fights, then after a while, you know, the hockey gets lost. You wonder why you're even there. And I had a feeling that was happening with Parliament. I didn't like that feeling in myself, uh, which was one of the reasons I thought maybe I would uh, take a different tack. But uh, the really, the traditionalists will say, no, no, the British parliamentary system can't have this. You can't deal with this. But the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, we saw Mr. Pearson do it. Uh, we saw Mr. Martin kind of do it. Uh, when he needed, in addition to Belinda Stronach, he needed the votes of the NDP, he had sort of an NDP budget. He had an add-on. He made a deal. Uh, this is not unheard of. This is not improper. But it has to be, I think, forced rather than left hanging out there at the whims of the public opinion polls and the political uh, uh, organizers who think this may be our moment. We better take a try. So I hope that uh, that will uh, welcome, uh, will find a welcome audience in your ears. And I hope that uh, you'll pick it up as I'm going to continue to do. And I hope maybe, because I think we're going to have the minority governments anyway, I hope maybe uh, we can make things change and make them work better. Thank you. Now, now I'm, I bet you've got a lot of questions on a lot more sexy and exciting topics than that. <laughs> and I'm quite prepared to answer them, too, on, on anything. So, questions? I think there's a mic coming, Dick. Well, you you did. Yeah, you're on. You did conspicuously leave out one very important aspect of your plan, which I, by the way, do think has a lot of merit to it, um, and that is, what is the role of the media in helping the country adjust to this new political culture that's less adversarial, and in which defeats in the House of Commons don't necessarily um, mean the end of your career in politics? Well, that's a good question. Uh, my sense is, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, my sense is that the media, as it reports, tend to reflect what is going on, and that if the culture starts to change, the media will reflect that. And I think that the media, uh, speaking for myself, and I think probably most of my colleagues that are here, uh, I enjoyed more reporting on issues like free trade and Meech Lake and, you know, the big issues of our time, or even the issue, uh, you know, that you were associated with in, in the 90s, uh, getting the deficit under control, how to change the budget. By and large, reporters like that a lot better than the other stuff. They, they you know, by and large, now there are a few reporters who would not agree, but by and large, reporters would prefer real substance to the kind of nonsense that we often see. So I, th I think, uh, you know, but, but they're reporting. They're, they're reporting what people are doing. They're not creating what people are doing. Uh, Don, first off, thank you very much. Friday, uh, weekdays at 5 p.m. will never be the same without you. And it's uh, <laughs> a gay thing. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to follow up on David's question, just in terms of the advent of 24-7 news environments and the relative economic crisis facing print media, what you see is the likely evolution of Canadian journalism. But I also wanted to ask you about uh, past elections. I think there have been 12 federal elections dating back to 1972, and whether there's one that stands out, whether that's 1988. Um, well, certainly the... The debates of 88 and 84 stand out as part of an election. First, thank you for your, your 
kind remarks. Uh, you should all know that starting October the 19th, uh, Evan Solomon is starting not a one-hour, but a two-hour program from 5 to 7. And uh, I'm looking forward to that, and you should too. It's uh, on uh, CBC News World starting October the 19th. Is that right, Matt? Yeah. Uh, I don't, you know, you know it was a really exciting election because you, you go back to 1972. The 1972 election was a really interesting election and went down to the wire. It wasn't clear. Uh, there had been the Trudeau mania election of 68, and uh, Trudeau, over the next four years, uh, various partly events, but partly Trudeau, had managed to uh, wither that support, the first majority government in about a decade. Uh, he had been able to wither that down to, we didn't know on election night whether or not he was going to be prime minister, and it was only a couple of recounts that actually uh, kept the liberals in power. It was uh, transformational for him. Uh, he then sort of became a politician. He'd been a philosopher before. He became a politician, and a couple of years later, he got back a small a small majority. Uh, I don't, all of the elections sort of have their own their own uh, feel about them. Uh, no, you know the the ones where there's a big change are usually more exciting. So the '84 election was exciting. '93 was exciting. '72 was very good. Um, I don't know. I like them all. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm glad I covered them all. <laughs> Excuse me, Don. Uh, it's a great honor to hear you today. Been a great fan of yours for many years. Oh. Um, during your tenure as uh, in Ottawa, who has been or who would have been the best prime minister of this country? <laughs> well, during my tenure, I would have been, of course. But... <laughs> Jobness just never seemed to be open. I don't know. Uh, anyway, um, by and large, I, I mean, I think being prime minister is a really tough job, and I'm not sure who I would say was, was the best. The two that I got along with when they were prime minister the best were Brian Mulroney and Jean Chrétien. I got along very well with Paul Martin when he was finance minister, exceptionally well. Uh, but he wasn't there long enough, really, as prime minister to see how that relationship would have played out. Brian Mulroney, um, I mean, News World changed the way politics was covered. I don't think when even those of us who were on at the beginning realized how much it would, but it first was the 24-hour news cycle. It was also Meech, Meech Lake was a big issue, The and uh, Brian Mulroney later told me he thought that uh, while News World had been uh, very good for me, uh, it hadn't been very good for Meech Lake or for him, and he wasn't <laughs> too thrilled by, because, of course, the government, uh, you know, it, there was an appeal on the News World license that went to the cabinet, and the cabinet let it go. And so I think he often wondered afterwards if he should have done that or uh, maybe he would have had Meech Lake. But he, would, he was great. He would phone me on commercial breaks. <laughs> and and uh, as, as I know you all know, when the prime minister phones you, usually uh, an operator comes on and says, uh, hello, uh, Ms. or Mr. so-and-so, uh, it's the Prime Minister's office, will you take a call from the Prime Minister? And then most of us say, no, we're busy and hang up, but <laughs> if we don't, you, you, you hang there for an interminable amount of time, and I don't know what the Prime Minister is doing, but finally he comes on and, uh, and you have a conversation that uh, usually is pretty short. 
on the desk of, and this first set we had at Newsworld, the show wasn't called Politics, it was called Capital Report, and it was really basically made out of old orange crates hammered together on the weekend by some nice person. Uh, but there was a phone on the desk, and it had a blinking light on it, so when it was ringing, uh, it didn't make a noise, but I knew it was on. And, and uh, the first time he phoned me was during the Meech Lake uh, debates, and Frank McKenna had become... Uh, premier of New Brunswick, and Richard Hatfield had been the premier when they signed the uh, Meech Lake deal at Meech Lake, but McKenna had got elected and he'd been opposed to it. He hadn't been really opposed to all of it, but turned out he wanted uh, New Brunswick recognized as a bilingual province, and he had a couple other little things. So anyway, uh, after a while, McKenna, who had every seat, he, he had no opposition at all in the legislature, complete reverse of a minority government, uh, he proposed a companion accord, and then he introduced it in the legislature, and he debate, He made a speech and so forth, and Newsworld was able to go live. So Newsworld went live, and we were covering his speech, and he was going on and so forth, and I had a little panel afterwards, and we did a little talk, and finally I signed off, and I was just about to leave the studio, and the light started blinking, and I picked it up, and I heard, Hello, Don. <laughs> It's a, a PMO source. <laughs> I didn't say who. Um, he said, I, uh, I see you liked uh, Frank's uh, companion accord. And I said, uh, well, you know, it seems, seems, uh, seems kind of interesting, yeah. He said, well, I want you to know that while he was holding the pen, I had my hand on his. <laughs> well, Prime Minister, that's very interesting. <laughs> well, you're not getting this from me. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Anyway, uh, that was the first time he called me. Uh, and he, he would quite often call, and he would always leak me a little stuff. And, and I quickly realized the kind of stuff he would leak me was always very... Uh, put him in a very positive, or the government in a very positive light. Um, but as long as it was accurate, it was leaked and it was good, and I would have it first, and I liked it. The only other time he, um, <laughs> he called, and in 1991, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was kidnapped, and there was a coup in Russia, which turned out to be a putative coup, but he was gone for a couple of days, and he was taken, I think, to Siberia or somewhere. Anyway, he got free, got back to Moscow, and was reestablished as head of the Soviet Union, and there was a lot of excitement about this, and uh, people were trying to get in touch with him and so on and so forth. And, and we were doing a, a special program, was rolling along, and I had uh, a former ambassador to Moscow, former Canadian ambassador to Moscow, sitting with me as, as an uh, expert on all of this. And uh, we went to commercial, and the light blinked, and I picked it up, and I said, hello? And the voice said, I just talked to Gorby. <laughs> And then he went on to recount how uh, he had just had a conversation with. I said, "Well, I said, well how is he? What, uh, you know, uh, oh, oh, he's fine." He said, "You know, it's a devil of a time getting hold of him." He said, uh, "I was told I'd get a call at three in the morning, so I, I was uh, awakened at two thirty, and I sat by the phone, and uh, nothing happened." And uh, about four, Mila said, well, you might as well come back to bed. He's never phoning you. 
But he phoned me now, and I'm going down to tell the caucus. I thought I'd tell you first. And I said, <laughs> and when I'm on the phone, the, the, the former ambassador is sort of looking, and he's wondering what's going on. And I said, uh, and, you know, the commercial was ending, and I was getting the cue to come back on. And I said, uh, are you watching television at uh, 24? Well, of course. That's why I phoned you. I said, well, uh, i got to say goodbye, and you'll see why in a minute. And I just hung up. And, of course, I came right back up on the screen. But I could see the ambassador saying, what the hell was that? And so I came on, and I said, uh, well, I can report that the prime minister is going to be going to the caucus shortly and uh, report to the caucus on his conversation with Mikhail Gorbachev. And apparently they've just spoken recently. And, and the ambassador's face was like, I think mine was like that when he phoned me the first time about McKenna, but by the time he phoned me about Gorby, you know, we'd done softwood lumber, we'd done all sorts of things on the phone together, so it didn't really matter. Um, Jean Chrétien was, uh, he, uh, he didn't usually call directly, but, but he, he seemed to like to be interviewed, and he would always, at least twice a year, he'd come on with me, and he, um, he I don't know if he would translate the questions, he, he seemed very bilingual, although he, when he spoke you weren't quite sure but, but when you were sitting across with him, do I lie? I mean, come on. Come on. We're, all, we're all over 21 here. Um, but he would, he would uh, you'd speak to him, and you're sitting across from each other, and in his eyes, you, you know, a, a, a good baseball hitter picks up the spin on, on the ball, and if it's tumbling one way, it's a curve, and if it's going the other way, it's a fastball. And... Kretchen was like that with the questions. He'd sort of look at you as you asked the question, and then he'd go, sort of he'd lock on to where it was going. <laughs> and when he was getting near the end of his time as prime minister, and he didn't really like questions about, you know, like how long are you going to be here and how long are you going to be there and so forth. Um, and I was doing an interview with him, and it was mainly about uh, the uh, G7 summit that was going to happen out in Alberta. But near the end... Uh, I switched and that was talking and I switched and he listened to the question and he saw it and even before I get out of my mouth he went he just jumped in and said hey guy why are you going to ask me that one hey come on come on guy <laughs> I said prime minister a waiting nation wants to hear your answer you'll have to just go ahead so they were the, certainly the two that were the most fun to cover. And, uh, but, you know, I, I think it's a darn hard job. I think everyone who gets to be prime minister is really smart and really disciplined and hardworking, and I, I have a lot of respect for all of them. And, uh, but those are the two I had the most fun with. Hi, Mr. Don Newman. I'm a big fan of yours, and my name's Alison Brett, and I study Canadian government and Canadian politics. Um, my question to you is about Senate reform. Uh, what's your opinion on Canada's future Senate? And also, to should Canada maintain the Senate the way it is by senators being appointed by the Prime Minister, or should we have a proportional representation in the Senate? Hmm, good question, and um, actually a very tough question. Because to change the Senate takes constitutional change, and to change the Constitution as we have... Uh, tried uh, in the 1980s and 90s, the end of the beginning of the 90s, is uh, very, very difficult. So the idea, you know, what would an ideal Senate be? Um, I've never been a great fan of proportional representation. I, I, I think that it, uh, although in the Senate it might work since it's not where the government comes from, but uh, 
proportional representation always creates coalition governments so they won't be minorities or uh, and this is another thing we might think about because in Sweden they have proportional representation and they always have a minority government. It's usually a party called the Social Democrats and whenever it has uh, legislation that's at all controversial, it just goes shopping and it finds one of the opposition parties and it might be partners with the Conservatives on one and uh, some other party on another and the Greens and so forth. Uh, the Senate doesn't really work that way but legislation still has to get through it to become law so uh, I think if you, I mean that's one reason even though there are lots of things about it that aren't very good and I think archaic, the fact that there are only two parties in any effective way is fairly efficient in that sense. It is, it is still the way Parliament was, was, I mean there are some people, citizen independents, but, but not very many. Um, I don't think we're going to have much change. It'd be interesting to see that these people Mr. Harper is appointing on the understanding they'll serve eight years and then leave. I think we could have a pool on how many of those people will actually do that, uh, particularly if Mr. Harper is no longer the Prime Minister. I think if he's still the Prime Minister, uh, maybe he will shame them into doing it, but my sense is it isn't likely to change very much. What I think we should do with the Senate is, is make sure the quality of appointments is, is high, and then we should use it in a way that uh, we don't, which would be to uh, study important issues. Uh, Michael Kirby did a study on, on public health that, uh, quite frankly, and I like Roy Romano, but it was far superior to Roy Romano's, cost uh, you know, a tenth of, of what Romano spent, and was, was essentially apolitical, and was just ignored. Uh, I think if we had more things like the Kirby report, we uh, get some value out of the Senate, and since I think it isn't going to change in structure or the way people get there very much, I think that's the way we should try and use it. Don? Somebody down here. Yeah. We have time for one more question. Oh, well, there, there's a person. Oh, well, let, can we have two? Pat, and then sure. this lady down here has been trying since the beginning. Don, you started an interesting train of thought when you said that in. Uh, I guess 74, Trudeau had to learn how to be a politician, mm -hmm. which leads to the obvious question of how far you think uh, Mr. Ignatieff has to go to learn to be a politician. Fair? Uh, yeah, I think it's a different kind of learning curve. I think, I think that uh, Trudeau uh, somehow didn't think that being a politician was fitting for him or maybe... Uh, civilized people, and he tried to operate in a different way than politicians do. Uh, then he realized in, after the 72 election that he had made a big mistake, uh, had a near-death experience, and he started, first he brought in some different people, as you well know, and they taught him how to be more of a politician. My sense with Mr. Ignatiev is that he wants to be a politician, uh, and he has people trying to teach him how to do it. Uh, and it is uh, like a lot of things. You can study it and learn it and, uh, and maybe get to be pretty good at it. Uh, some people are instinctively... I don't think Brian Mulroney ever took a lesson on how to be a politician. He just instinctively knew how to be a politician. Uh, and a lot of people do that. Uh, but I don't think Ignatiev is a natural politician, but he, I think he knows he has to be a politician. And I think that he's... Uh, working on learning how, and I guess, uh, I mean, uh, again, you know, his, uh, 
the events of this week have really been uh, his Christmas. He's got to vote against the government. He's got the two opposition parties uh, who were meant to be in a coalition with him, actually, in this sort of very short-lived arrangement, or maybe it's a longer-lived arrangement with the conservatives, so he's got that monkey a bit off his back. And while he says he's beating his chest and wants an election, he's actually getting more time to prepare for it, and the, he needs more time. So this has been a, a week's a long time in politics, but this has been a good week for him. But I think he wants to be a politician, and I think he's going to try and learn. And I think that's the difference between him and, and the early Trudeau. Thank you. Um, I, I, I just want to thank you for your fascinating um, exposition of a possible way forward in these kind of strange political times, but I did notice that you raised the dreaded C word uh, and spoke of coalition, and uh, you know, which has become kind of a poison pen, though, of, uh, of course, as you pointed out, uh, possibly, uh, you know, a, a necessity for the future. So um, can you just perhaps give us a kind of sense of uh, how you see the sort of political culture could evolve to the point where um, that kind of concept, uh, you know, is, is seen by the media and the people and the politicians in a different way. Um, well, good point. But I think that if people decide that we're going to try and get from one fixed election date to the next, they understand there's either going to be an informal coalition or a series of informal arrangements between political parties, or there's going to be a coalition government. The coalition of last November, December, the short-lived one, uh, it had a number of things against it, including a very strong conservative spin machine, which was uh, able to, uh, in some ways, paint it as a coup, uh, socialists and separatists, all that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, the reason I think they were able to do that was we just had an election. Uh, the person who was going to lead the coalition had been rejected in a way that uh, few liberal leaders had in the past, so he really was unacceptable to lead it. Plus, he was only going to stay till May, and then he was going to go and turn it over to either Bob Ray or Michael Ignatiev, so it, it really didn't hang together in any sensible way. But, uh, you know, if, if you have a coalition of parties... Say the, say the party that gets the most seats gets about 35% of the vote. So that means the other party's got uh, 65% of the vote. If you have a coalition of parties that got 65% of the vote, pretty hard to say it's illegitimate, it seems to me. Just the, the math denies that. And I think that uh, as long as the people leading it are acceptable, uh, at least the 65% of the people, uh, I, I think that people will not find that unusual. And I think that... Uh, and I think we're more likely to have that than the kind of arrangement we had uh, either with David Peterson and Bob Ray or with uh, Pierre Trudeau and, and uh, David Lewis. Because when you have these informal coalitions where the NDP in both cases was propping up the liberals, usually that works really well for the liberals and they often go on to a majority and the NDP kind of get pushed out of it. But if the NDP get cabinet seats like they would have in the last coalition, that'll help the NDP. But, so I think that you know, you're right. There's a culture change that has to be uh, undertaken, but my argument, and I hope I hope this resonates, is that it's better than what we've had in the last uh, five years, and uh, are going to continue to have, in a way that I think will be very damaging to the country if we don't change it. Thank you.
I'd like to uh, call on Amanda Lang, Vice President of the Canadian Club of Toronto, to thank Don Newman. Well, Don, it's a big privilege to thank you and honour on behalf of the Canadian Club. I, I, I can't speak for Evan, but following you anywhere is hard, even to a podium. Um, you've heard a little bit, and you got a sense from the questions. You're all here because you know who Don Newman is. I don't need to tell you. When I say what I'm about to say, it makes him sound older and me younger than either of us is. But he is the kind of journalist who inspires other journalists. Uh, it's the way the craft can be done. It's the way the craft should be done. And for 40 years, it was done. And a, a big part of that is that he changed the way that Canadians knew their country. He changed the, the, the debate on public policy and he changed the framing of it, and that's important. And as he talked, I thought, it struck me that there are some things that are more important than power. And uh, they're in some ways more powerful than power. And Don Newman, I think, enjoyed some of that privilege. We got a sense of the stories he could tell, and I, God, I hope there's a book coming. <laughs> Please, Don, if not a miniseries. Uh, and I know we'll... Uh, <laughs> I know we'll all look forward to that. I, ha I will say this, though, and I think I speak for the room, that as I listen to him talk about the direction of our country, the future of our country, uh, I thought nothing he's saying makes me feel good about him retiring. And I hope that he hasn't gone too far. I think he can still have a big influence. I hope he does. Life is long. You're not old and I'm not young. I hope we do work together at some point. Thank you for speaking here today, Don. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Don. And thank you all our guests for joining us today. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. This meeting is now adjourned. Thank you all.